This is Wesley Huff. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. If you don't recognize my voice, no, Andy did not get an octave lower and find a way to make himself sound 15 years younger. I am the newest addition to the Apologetics Canada team, and you'll be hearing my voice occasionally as I'll be hosting the podcast here and there. And this is a fact that I'm excited about because a lot of people tell me I have a face for podcasting, so I'm excited to live that out in real life. And on this episode today, I have a special guest with me in the studio, However, because of the nature of the work he does for safety and posterity reasons, we're going to be using a pseudonym. And the pseudonym that I've chosen for him today is Siri. Now, this is not because I'm a typical millennial and I like to talk to my iPhone too much, although that very well might be true. Now, I've chosen this particular title due to a little bit of play on words. Uh, because the topic that we're going to be talking about today is that of Muslim dialogue and evangelism. And the Arabic word for my secret is the word Siri, which if you transliterated it into English and anglicized it would just be spelled S-I-R-I. So in other words, Siri. So for the purpose of protection for the work that he does, and because I'm a bit of a nerd, I'm going to be addressing my guest today as Siri. So Siri, welcome to the AC Podcast. Thank you, Leslie. It's good to be here with you today. So why don't you uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your background with Muslims and Islamic contexts? So I've been doing outreach and ministry to Muslims now for over about 10 years and a variety of different contexts. Um, a large chunk of that was spent in a Middle Eastern country, uh, majority Muslim, uh, but I've also done a large amount of work with a variety of different diaspora Muslim groups, uh, including refugees, including uh, immigrant populations in Europe, as well as North America. Admittedly, you and I have a little bit of a crossover in our area of interest. Some of the listeners will know that I do work with Muslims on the university campus with my work with Power to Change, but we also cross over a little bit in our church and ministry context. And so uh, I'm excited to uh, have you in discussion today. And one of the reasons, apart from the fact that I have uh, a personal interest investment in a Muslim evangelism and Muslim apologetics is is the fact that Ramadan earlier this month just ended. And so some of our listeners may be aware that there was something going on in the Muslim world and that they may have seen in some places in Canada where Muslims were practicing something that, that was different than their, their normal daily activities. So why don't you, why don't you for our viewers uh, explain a little bit about what Ramadan is and why it's significant, particularly to Muslims? All right. So Ramadan is the holiest month in the Islamic calendar. It's actually on the lunar calendar. So it, it moves every year. It's going to be about 10 to 15 days earlier each year. Uh, it's a month that commemorates the time that the Quran was believed to first be revealed to Muhammad. And so they celebrate that by having a, a month of fasting, but they fast from sunup until sundown. 
Um, no food, no water. Really, the tradition is that nothing should pass the lips. So even more conservative Muslims will not even brush their teeth. They won't even go swimming for fear that there may be something that passes their lips. Uh, but then at sundown, they break fast together, maybe with family, maybe with friends. And it really is a time of, of celebration and feasting. Uh, so a lot of times it's called a month of fasting, but in a lot of places it does turn into a month of feasting where they have special foods that they eat. Uh, it's a very, it's a time that they look forward to. So culturally beyond that too, it's a time where they have special movies and TV programs that they gather around and watch. In some places they may even flip their schedule to where they sleep during the day. They eat at night and stay up uh, just celebrating throughout the night. Yeah, I, I once, uh, I knew a Muslim who wouldn't spit during the month of Ramadan just because he was afraid that, that that might cause some pleasure to his lips. So, so smoking and, um, spitting were out of the realm of, of possibilities for him. Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at some of the statistics globally, more food, it seems, is consumed in the Muslim world during the month of Ramadan than possibly at any other time in the year. There's, although it's a, like you said, a time of fasting, there, there seems to be an awful lot of food consumed at particular times during the day, doesn't there? There does. And at the supermarkets, that's their big time of year. And so like to go to the supermarket during Ramadan, it's, it's full, especially like in the weeks leading up, people are stocking up on their food. It's crazy, uh, just there in the Middle East. And, like you said, there are some people that actually gain weight during Ramadan just because of the way they eat and the times they eat and that they're eating so much during the, the nights and the evenings. Yeah, Islamic Christmas, right? Yes, it is. It is very much like we spend the month of December leading up to Christmas. And for them, it has that same kind of sentimental feel. It's a time of year that they look forward to. It's a festive time. And so just think about it the way we in the West would think of Christmas. That's their same kind of sentiment towards Ramadan. That's great. Uh, thanks, Siri. You know, there are other belief systems and practices within Islam, uh, along with Ramadan, which is, is a core essential. Uh, can you just go through maybe uh, a few of the other central beliefs that might be helpful to some of our audience? Well, when we talk about central beliefs and practices in Islam, we usually talk about the five pillars of Islam, Ramadan and fasting being one of them. Another being the Shahada, which is called the, the testimony, and it's what you say to become a Muslim. And that's talking about there being only one God and Muhammad being the prophet that came from God. There's also the prayers. So Muslims pray five times a day. Uh, we'll come back to that in just a minute and talk a little bit more about what Muslim prayer looks like. The fourth one would be the, the alms that they give. So they're required to give a certain percentage of what they have to the poor. A lot of times that happens during Ramadan because they think it counts for more favor in God's sight if they give these things during Ramadan. And then the fifth is the Hajj or the pilgrimage to Mecca. So each Muslim that is able is required to go to Mecca at one time during their life. And really for it to count as the true Hajj, you have to do it during the, the Eid al-Adha, which is the festival of the sacrifice that comes about 40 days after Ramadan. Uh, but as far as back to the prayer, one of the daily aspects that you, the, 
you see in Islam is the five prayers a day. Uh, so they pray once at sun, sunrise, uh, and then they pray about the noon hour, and then about mid-afternoon, and then at sundown, and then the last prayer is about an hour, hour and a half after sundown. Uh, and they're supposed to do these prayers each day. And now prayer in, in Islam looks different than prayer in Christianity. Now when we say prayer, we usually think about speaking to God, about bringing our petitions to God. But when they talk about doing their prayers the five times a day, that word is important, doing or performing. Uh, they don't talk about saying prayers. It's not like you're speaking to God. Prayer is something that you perform. And so their prayer are memorized passages from the Quran that they simply recite. And they recite them as they do certain physical movements, the prostrations. Even to pray, you have to cleanse yourself. And so to cleanse yourself, you have to wash. Uh, so really, any mosque is going to have water. Uh, somewhere present so that they can wash before they do their prayers. And the sense is that they have to wash away anything that defiles them before they can enter into God's presence. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind is that this disparity between how we view prayer and understand prayer and how Muslims view and understand prayer. And I think that really has to do with the way that we understand and see God. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for them, their view of God is he is very distant. I mean, God is completely one. I mean, that is, as far as like a theological concept, that is the foundation to Islam, that God is one and undivided. For God to be one and undivided, there to be no differentiation within him, he has to be distant from the world. He has to be utterly transcendent. Um, so this idea of having a relationship with God does not exist at all in Islam. And even their idea of paradise, paradise is not like our view of heaven where we will be in the presence of God. No, really, maybe only one or two of the very best uh, would be in, you know, the top level of heaven where God is at. Everybody else is just kind of in their own little paradise in certain levels down. That's an important thing to keep in mind. I think I remember reading, uh, this was years ago, so I could be remembering it incorrectly, uh, but in the, the oral traditions, which are referred to as the Hadith in Islam, there's a story where Muhammad is said to have described the end of days and after the resurrection, you know, the most holy people will stand on a hill and Allah will appear on the horizon. And that's about it. Because, you know, Allah is so transcendent. He's so beyond us. And that's another difference to highlight within Christianity and Islam is the nature of God. We use Christian language like the doctrine of the Trinity, that, that God within his one being is encompassed by three co-equal, co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there is actually a word like Trinity in Islam that refers to the oneness, um, Tawheed. And Tawheed, referring to that that unity and oneness of Allah in in Islam. And that that's a pretty big disparity. Um, you hear some people, I know a few years ago, there was a, a bit of a controversy with uh, highlighting whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And I think when we look at God in the Bible, specifically in the Old and New Testaments, and see how personable how much he wants to interact with humanity. Um, language like calling God Father, that's foreign to the God of Islam. And even though in 
in one way you can see where a Muslim would say, yes, we worship the same God as you, because they would see Islam as the succession of true Judaism and Christianity following that what was sent before that the Islamic literature says that that we've gone astray in. There is this concept that that we we do worship the same God in Islam, but we just worship him improperly. Whereas I think if you actually looked at the character of who God is in the Bible, it's so far from anything you see in the Quran or in the Islamic literature in regards to that. Yeah, and I think that's a good point to remember, too, is that when we talk with Muslims, uh, we're using a lot of the same words, but we're we're meaning very different things by them. So, like Wesley, like you said, like when they use God, they have a very different perception of who God is and what he's like. You know, when they talk about prayer, they think they have very different thoughts about what it is. We're using the same word, but we're communicating two different things. Uh, when they talk about sin, sin for a Muslim is more of, of weakness. It's more of just kind of a stumble. It's not... It's not rebellion against God. It's not something that brings about separation from God. It's just like making a mistake. So it's when you're talking to Muslims, it's important to remember that we may be using the same vocabulary, but we're meaning very different things by the words that we're using. Yeah, I think especially when we're highlighting sin, it can be hard for the Muslims we're talking to to truly grasp what we're talking about. I knew a preacher who was, uh, he'd converted from Islam to Christianity, and he was doing this event where he knew Muslims and Christians would be in the audience. And to highlight sin, he wanted to put a mirror on the stage and talk about the image of God and then smash the mirror and say, you know, sin is not just, it's not just an oops, you know, it's, it's a devastation to everything that we understand with our standing with God. I mean, the leadership in his church didn't actually let him do that uh, for purposes of, uh, of not having uh, shards of glass flying everywhere on the, on the stage. But, but I think, I think it does illustrate, especially what he had visualized when he was a Muslim and he just saw sin as, as, kind of menial, something that he could outdo by good acts. Um, it's, it's an important thing to keep in mind. You, you spoke earlier of the washings uh, during the prayers. I, I spoke at an event at York University here in Toronto once. I didn't know that the event was actually taking in what was built as a Muslim prayer hall, but I was trying to find a washroom and I kept walking into rooms that I thought were washrooms and they were ablution rooms and all I could find was taps. Uh, I, I couldn't, I had to go actually to another floor to find an actual washroom where I could relieve myself. But they have these rooms that they use to wash themselves immediately before prayer. There's a whole uh, ritual aspect to the Muslim practice there. Now, another aspect, Siri, that I, I wanted to ask you about was the concept of Jesus within Islam. Because like you said just now, sometimes we'll be using the same words and we'll mean completely different things. And I think a lot of Christians are surprised to find out that Jesus is a central character within Islam. Can you just describe who Jesus is within Islam and, and how that differs a little bit from what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus and Christianity? Yeah, so Jesus is actually a very elevated figure within Islam. Um, of all the prophets, he would be in like the top three, being Muhammad, Moses, and Jesus. Um, the Quran actually talks about Jesus more than it talks about Muhammad. Uh, but the difference is they see Jesus simply as a prophet. 
just one in the line of the prophets. You know, he is elevated over a lot of them, but he's still just a man, just a prophet when it comes down to it. Some Islamic traditions will hold that Jesus alone was sinless. Um, there are others that might see all prophets as sinless. So he, again, he would just be in the line of the prophets like the rest of them. That would just be natural for him to be sinless. But when it comes down to the cross, I mean, there are verses in the Quran that seem to say that Jesus did not die. And so whether or not the Quran says that, it is popular belief amongst Muslims today that Jesus was not crucified. They believe that maybe somebody was put in his place, made to look like him. Um, there are some that believe that he swooned and didn't really die, but that he, you know, once he was in the tomb, he was revived. There are those that believe that he was on the cross, but God saved him before death and took him up to heaven and that he will come back at the end of time, that he will live a life, have children, you know, then die a natural death. So there's a lot of differing beliefs about Jesus, but it really comes down to the main difference being that they, they do just see him as a prophet. They will say, there are many Muslims that have told me, it's like, you know, I'm a better Christian than you because I love Jesus and I don't give to him anything that he didn't give to himself. Referring to, you know, us making him out to be the son of God. They're saying, no, he, he wouldn't have attributed that to himself. So why should you go beyond what he said of himself? We're better Christians than you are. So, um, in light of that, when we're using this, this, at least the same name for a character named Jesus, how can we as Christians communicate who the true Jesus is, the Jesus that exists in history, the Jesus uh, that is expounded in scripture, the Jesus who did claim to be God? How would you recommend the best way to communicate the truth of Jesus to a Muslim who uh, may think they know who Jesus is, may think they uh, have a, a picture better than we do of who Jesus is. Uh, what would you recommend in an evangelistic context to be able to speak the truth of Jesus to Muslims who, who view him in a, in a very different way than we do? I think an important part of communicating the true nature of Jesus is putting him in the overarching story. So like I said, Muslims have this idea of the succession of prophets. But as you read the Quran, as you read their traditions, there's no like overarching narrative, no storyline. So they, you know, Muslim children will often memorize the names of the prophets, but they have no idea where they fit in. They have no idea of the chronology, no idea of the story of what God is doing. So I think an important part of helping Muslims understand Jesus is helping them to understand the overall biblical narrative, starting with Adam and Eve, understanding the fall and the real re repercussions of sin and what sin really means. You know, understanding the call of Abraham and the promise of, of Jesus that comes to Abraham. You know, understanding Moses and deliverance and that comes from the Exodus and understanding, you know, the Paschal Lamb and um, the Passover and what that means for sacrifice. Uh, there's that idea of sacrifice that runs throughout the prophets is something that is in Islam. Um, in fact, one of the stories that is, is shared is the, the story of Abraham sacrificing his son to God. Now, they believe that it was Ishmael and not Isaac, but for the most part, the rest of the story tends to line up. And so there is this idea of sacrifice 
there's really not a lot of theology behind sacrifice in Islam to really for them to have a good grasp of why they're doing this. It's just more of a ritualistic thing. But tying Jesus back to the, the Old Testament and to the story of the prophets that came before him, I think can be a powerful way to help Muslims see the true meaning of Jesus and why it was necessary for him to come, what his death meant. And as they see how all these things tie together, I think it, it begins to open their eyes. I think that's a powerful way to uh, articulate the the why behind the what. It seems that, at least as as far as I can tell, there's a lot of what in terms of pragmatism um, within Islam. But like you just said, these figures, these people, these stories, they sort of seem to sit in a vacuum within Islam. There's no real attachment to a narrative line. And when you read, I think particularly through the Old Testament, but right into the um, fulfillment within the New Testament, there's so much rich story there that if you ever do uh, read the Quran, you just don't get to the same degree. The Quran seems very fragmented and, and static. Even concepts like, I remember reading there was um, a Muslim scholar in the Middle Ages who was trying to figure out what the word Messiah meant because there was just no association with the word in Islam. It, it was an inherently Jewish Hebraic word. And in Arabic, it just, it was sort of transliterated into and, and popped in. And uh, the scholar comes up with a, a list of different possible meanings by tracing the Semitic roots back. And actually one of the possible meanings that he said was most likely was uh, a flat-footed, that Jesus was a flat-footed prophet because he traveled around and spoke to so many crowds and that that's what the term Messiah actually meant. But it's totally devoid of any concept of an anointed one, of a chosen one, of, of someone to come. So I think that, yeah, that's a really great way to connect the stories of who these characters are. So it's important to realize that in Islam, they hold that the Torah, the book of Moses, and the, the Psalms, which would be the book of David for them, and the Gospels are part of the succession of Revelation. I mean, they think that the Quran is in line with those books. And yet it can be frustrating because the Quran, even though it says it's in line with those books, it seems to have really not much knowledge of what the books actually say. Um, it tells some of the same, same stories, but they're distorted. They don't have the same details. They're, they're changed in ways that make them about completely different points or the stories are used to make points that they don't even refer to. And so when you compare the way that the Quran relates to the books that came before it to the way that the New Testament relates to the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament is saturated by the worldview of the Old Testament. And it is, I mean, it's full of direct quotations from the, the Old Testament. You can hardly go a page in the New Testament without having a quotation or an allusion to something directly in the Old Testament. And so we see in the story of Jesus how he really fits within what came before him. Whereas the Quran, even though it claims that same fit within the tradition that preceded it, it seems to have no relationship, no real direct connection to the things that preceded it. Yeah, there seems to be a pretty hard disconnect between what the Quran and the Islamic narrative claims. And when you actually look into that claim, 
and how it plays out, especially like you said, you know, there are tens of thousands of quotations of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And especially if you're reading a book like Hebrews, I mean, it's called Hebrews for a reason, right? It has all these quotations of the Old Testament and its, its argument as a whole is drawn from the Hebrew scriptures. And yet, when we look at the, the Quran, um, as far as I can tell, uh, the author of the Quran hadn't read a sentence of the Old or New Testaments. And actually, some of the academic work that I've done, uh, it actually looks like even if the author of the Quran had access to those documents, they really wouldn't have been translated into Arabic until a good time period after uh, Muhammad is, is said to have died in 632. There are sections of it in the Syriac. And according to the, the traditional Islamic narrative, Muhammad was said to have been illiterate anyways. So he couldn't have read them even if he wanted to. But it does seem funny that there's this argument of of uh, a fundamental consistency uh, with what the the Jews and the Christians believed before. And yet, in practicality, uh, there seems to be very little to no actual connection with that source information in general. And I would say it's even, even really, when it comes to practical terms, the opposite of that. And that, that Islam really goes against the very heart of Christianity. So instead of being a religion that is in line with what came before, I think it's a religion that was developed to speak against Christianity and the things that Christians believed. And it was a way of Islam and this this new empire, you know, wielding its power and trying to make itself greater than those that came before and to exercise their control on a land that was full of Christians and Jews. And so there are very many things that are in the religion that go against, directly against the things that came before. Yeah, I, I think specifically you mentioned the denial of the crucifixion and sort of the ambiguity around that in general in chapter 4, verse 157 of, of the Quran. And there's disagreements, as you said, between what that even means in the Quran itself between Muslims. You know, did Jesus die? Was he crucified? I mean, it, it doesn't seem to communicate that in a way that is, is fully understood. But yeah, I think, I think if we look at the Muslim narrative, uh, on the whole, especially with its, its fundamental argument in the Quran, uh, against the Trinity, although I think we both agree that the Quran never understands the Trinity. Yeah, that's, that's it too, because they, when, even when it speaks about Christianity or speaks against things in Christianity, it doesn't quite understand what Christians really believe. So whenever the Quran speaks about not speaking of God as Trinity, it talks about not speaking as God, of God as Trinity as Father, Son, and the Virgin Mary. No Christian, no Orthodox Christian would say that the Holy Trinity is God, Jesus, the Son, and, and Mary. And so it, it misunderstands even what Christians believe. Sometimes I wonder whether it's useful to say that the, the religion that the Quran is arguing against is one that I would argue against, too. It's, it's not one that I believe in either. Exactly. <laughs> so we're sort of looking around when the Quran is speaking to us and saying, I don't know who you're talking to, but you're not talking to me as a, as a modern-day Orthodox Christian. Uh, yeah, I think those are, are some, some great points. And that helps us fill out our perspective in the conversation of historical Islam. But I think... You and I would both agree that the modern day Muslim, their understanding of historical Islam may not be all that much. 
sometimes I think of, you know, the average butt in the pew in the Christian church and how much they know about church history and, you know, the formation of the canon and, and biblical theology and, um, that can make us uh, make us a little bit depressed sometimes. But would you say that the average Muslim uh, walking down the street who some of our, our listeners may run into, how much of the history and narrative of even their own associated uh, religious culture would they know? I think just your average Muslim doesn't understand that much about the history or the narrative of their faith. And really, that's not the way Islam is designed. It's not so much a system of beliefs, but a system that really governs your life. Uh, so I think your average Muslim, one of the big concepts that probably governs their life more than anything is this idea of like haram and halal. Hmm. So like for them, if haram means like forbidden, halal means like permissible or allowable. And that's, that's what they think about in so many different things. So like pork is haram. It's forbidden because it's unclean. Alcohol is haram. And so a lot of their discussions, like with their imam or with their, their spiritual leaders is thinking about like, all right, this specific situation, is it permissible or is it forbidden? And what does that mean for my life? And I think your average Muslim, that dominates their thought more than, you know, any kind of narrative or theological thing. It's just the very practical day to day is, can I do this or can I not do this? And then weighing out, like, can I get away with small things? Thinking that, you know, I'll do, you know, do my prayers, do things to make up for the, the mistakes I've made. In light of that, uh, what would you say, Siri, is one of the best ways that we can speak into uh, the Muslims who we have around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, in light of the fact that there is this theological background that either doesn't understand or, or works as an antithesis to what we believe as Christians, and the fact that there's this fundamental pragmatism of thinking in terms of haram and halal, and um, what is permissible and what is not permissible, and how to act that out. How do we as Christians speak into the lives of Muslims in a practical way, but one that really reaches them where they're at? I think part of it just comes down to kind of where we started with this difference in the view of God and helping them understand that God is love and that he wants to bring about forgiveness in their lives. Uh, I remember we were having a conversation club back in the Middle East with people that were learning English. And I just threw out the question and asked them, it's like, what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word God? And the majority of the people said fear. Hmm. Um, so because they're living with this mindset of haram and halal, and they're living in this mindset of a God who is distant and who is going to judge them, their relationship to God is one of fear. And so it's, it's quite a weight to try and think about, you know, am I making up for the wrongs that I've done? Am I made up for my sin? And so part of the way that we can help Muslims is helping them see, you know, that they are lost. That, I mean, they, they understand sin. They understand trying to be good enough and not being good enough. Um, they're trying to make up for that. But then communicating that there is a way that God's already made a way in Jesus to take away the wrongs that we have done. And that God is not one that we should fear in an, an unhealthy sense. I mean, there is, there is fear of God in this kind of reverence idea, but it's different from the way that they, they do live in fear of God and his judgment coming upon them because they don't understand the forgiveness. They don't understand the love of God. 
And if we can communicate that, communicate the true nature of God and the way that he is the one that makes a way, I think in some ways that takes a weight off their shoulders because they're living with this weight. They're living with this question. And when we come back to this idea of like, do you have assurance that you will be in paradise, that God will forgive your sins, that you will wipe them away? Muslims don't have assurance. And you can even ask them, what about like on judgment day? Will you know for sure that your sins have been forgiven? They're going to say, inshallah, God willing, like we don't have any idea. Because really, when it comes down to it, their God is very arbitrary. There's no consistency, and even in their God. Because you could be the best person and do all these great works, and if God is having a bad day, he can send you to hell because he's God. And there's nothing to stop that. In one way, that's the message for everybody. <laughs> Muslims are not. You know, this the promise of the gospel and how it releases us from from guilt and shame and the fact that God has written his law on our hearts. And I, I think it's pretty powerful that we have a God who has done that, who has stepped down from eternity into humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. And what good news that is for our our Muslim friends, our Muslim co-workers. Um, I remember there's a story my mom tells of when we were living in Pakistan and she gave this lady she knew a Bible in Urdu and the lady said, your God speaks in my language? And it was just the concept that she had that, you know, well, Allah, he speaks Arabic. And so I read the Quran in Arabic. But to have a God who speaks not only English, um, but Urdu as well, just kind of, it blew her mind that it was a God who transcended these cultural boundaries and barriers and the good news that speaking into that is. Yeah. And that, I mean, there's a lot of Muslims that have that experience. Just, I think it's important when you're talking to your Muslim friends to understand that they come from a variety of different backgrounds, a variety of different understandings of what the faith means. Arabic is the language of Islam, but even the language of Quran, a lot of my Arabic speaking friends, they don't understand it. So if Arabic is their language and they don't understand the Quran, what about these people that speak Urdu? What about the people in Indonesia that they're reading the Quran in a language that is not their own, um, that's their second language, and they understand very little of what it's saying. It doesn't really speak to their heart. But to talk about a God who, who comes and meets us where we are, who speaks our language, who enters into our, our existence, that he might draw himself to, draw us to himself, uh, that's quite a, a different message. One of, that is a message of love, a message of hope, a message of a future. Yeah, and just piggybacking that, uh, just as an aside, I think it's it's pertinent to mention that, you know, a lot of the times when we think of Muslims, we think of Arabs, but that the globally, the Muslim world is, is very large. And so you have Muslims who, um, a lot of Muslims, the majority of Muslims who aren't speaking Arabic as their native language, never mind, as you said, the Hajizi script Arabic of, of the Quran. And the fact that a lot of them aren't even, even the devout ones, aren't reading or even understanding what they're reading about in the Quran. I told you the story last week, uh, Siri, I think of my Indonesian friend who I knew in my undergrad, who was a very, very uh, devout uh, Muslim, one of the, one of the most devout Muslims I'd, I'd ever met. He would pray more than five times a day because he wanted to get those extra prayers in. Um, but, he once told me, he said, you know, Wes, I love what I do. I love my religion. I love the prayers. I love following the five pillars. I love the practice. And I've almost memorized the entire Quran, um, which 
sounds pretty daunting. I have known a few Muslims who who have done it or at least attempted it. And um, the Quran is is much smaller than the Bible. Comparatively, it's it's a lot closer to, say, either the New Testament or even just the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so if you think about even memorizing one Gospel, I mean, that's a, that's a big endeavor in of itself. But this guy had almost memorized the entire Quran. He looked at me straight in the face and he said, and you know, Wes, one day I'd like to get a translation in my own language so I know what it says. And it was just like, I honestly, at the time, I didn't have a response because I didn't even know what to say because I thought of all the people who would have known the Quran. And he had, he, he knew passages, but he, would, he had just memorized them phonetically. And the little Arabic that he knew didn't fully explain what he was learning, what he was doing. And that really was, those were his prayers. The, the, a lot of the, the Quran Arabic that he knew were the prayers that he had memorized and said. We have a God who transcends cultures. Uh, the true God, the God who created heaven and earth is one that can speak into the situation of the person who is Nepalese or Indonesian or English or American, Canadian. It doesn't matter who they are or what they do. God accepts them um, for who they are. Uh, he accepts them where they're at. Now, now the caveat to that is that uh, he accepts them too much to leave them where they're at. Um, so he will be working on their hearts uh, in the process of sanctification. But in Islam, like you, like you said, the, the concept of that fear, that is something that I think we can really practically speak into. Yeah, I think to give people hope, to give them a, a true picture of who God is, to deliver them from that fear uh, to deliver them from the weight of constantly trying to live up to this standard, constantly, you know, asking, you know, is this haram? Is this halal? Will this, you know, send me to hell? Will this, you know, make my chances of getting into paradise better? That's something that they need to be freed from. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Siri. I really appreciated some of the insights that you've given, and uh, I'm sure that they will help our listeners not only understand a little bit more about Islam, but practically be able to, to reach out and give an answer for the hope that they have to their Muslim friends. Well, thank you, Wesley. I've enjoyed being here with you today as well. It's been a great conversation. And I, I do just want to say that um, when it comes down to it, uh, this is a process that has to be bathed in prayer. We can do our best to be witnesses, but it's God that changes the heart of people. Uh, so pray for your Muslim friends. Pray for Muslim friends to be brought into your life, knowing that God is the one that's going to make the difference. Amen. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we will come back next week with more things to talk about. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.